Now, does everybody have, uh, you should have six total pages of outlines. Let's go ahead and get started. Now, as you know, I normally have a rule that I'm only going to have an outline of what I can uh, fit on the front and the back of one page. And I am limited to 45 minutes. Uh, and actually, because I'm only going to cover the parts highlighted on my page, and then just share with you how you can use the outline for yourself, we're going to actually get through it in 45 minutes. So, if, uh, what I really want to kind of do today is talk about why we have these church history and theology classes. It is our, uh, this uh, will be the fourth time we've run our church theology class, our systematic theology class, uh, and we were a little church of, I don't know, 12, 15 people when we ran it the first time, and we had 10 people started. Uh, part of our ministry has been to kind of equip and mature people over time. So the first time we ran it, we had 10 people start it and four people finish. Uh, second time we ran it, we had 10 people start it and seven people finish. And last time we ran it, we had 10 people start and all 10 finished. This time we already have 16 signed up, and we are actually going to be passing a sign-up sheet around. And it's, uh, let's see if I got the right one here. This, yeah, so this is uh, this actually says waiting list on it because we're going to limit the class to 16 people and we have 15. However, we are going to be talking to one or two people and asking them to maybe consider taking the church history. There's a couple people that we've okayed to take both classes. However, we don't really recommend that unless you're a very good student kind of involved in the core group and of the church and really uh, able to handle that kind of a load. And I'll explain the load as we go. But this is going around. Please, if you want to take the theology class, just pretend no one signed up yet. Just sign, uh, sign it because uh, what we probably will do, this may be Ray's last chance of, of, of last time to, to, to teach it. He's 87 years old. He'll be uh, just we'll be finishing just before his 89th birthday, and, and, the, and the next time we start it, he'll be 89. He did tell me on the week, on the phone this week, though, though don't count him out <laughs> for one more running. But uh, uh, Nathan Hager is going to kind of mentor under Ray, uh, just in case the next time we run it, uh, we need someone else to take it. Nathan will take it over. So if I could get uh, some water in a glass instead of a bottle, that would be nice. So, um, I think there's a glass on the back bookshelves. So, um, then also for the church history class, another clipboard is going around. We are putting no limitations on who can take this. And uh, I'm going to explain the two classes in a minute. So, if it goes by you and you afterwards go, oh, gee, I wish I'd assigned it, it'll be back on the back round table. Uh, coming up, and um, the church history class will be easier overall than the theology class, and uh, you know that'll become clear in a few minutes. So, before I get into the actual outline, I'm going to just talk a little bit. You should have an outline that's actually kind of the syllabus and an explanation of the church history class. That's just a front and back, and it's not stapled. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that, uh, what we're doing there. 
but first, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the theology class, since Ray can't always be with us. I'm going to, the theology class, I have two copies of the book here, one that belongs to Catherine and one that belongs to me, and we usually lend them to someone, although Anvesh and I looked it up and found copies for $18 and some, some what, 18 what, Eight, 1852 uh, on Barnes and Noble's website today. This is Logan's. He borrowed this from me last time, so he used it. And he put his Cleveland Indians, um, what do you call it, cover on it. And I decided to leave it on because if you borrow one from someone, that's actually a very good idea to cover it. He, he gave it back to me in great shape. Sometimes when people borrow books, they come back all trashed. And uh, so... Um, just pass those, look at the book, look at the table of contents if you want, whatever, and let's just pass that around as we're talking today. The theology class um, goes like this. There are three kinds of theology that, w- that you need to study. Uh, the first one is just biblical studies and, that, and biblical theology, because theology just means the study of God's Word. One of the things we try to do in our church is from the beginning, uh, when you first start coming, we love on you and hug you and feed you and uh, have, have, hopefully have great worship and everything. And then when, we, when you, we've developed a little bit of a platform of trust, we try to encourage you that God, just go, let it go around. Oh, that's something else. That God could really use, it would re, be very helpful for your walk with God if you actually studied the whole Bible. And that it's not that overwhelming of a task. So, um, you know, uh, today uh, most people read in kind of a proof text way. So the second kind of theology, that will become clear in a second. The second kind of theology is called historical theology. And historical theology is kind of looking at how has the church, Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus has always been active in his church. There's never been any time periods that Jesus is not active in his church. There tends to be um, what was called the Anabaptist view of of the church uh, that has affected American Christianity quite a bit. Tended to think the church was faithful during the life of the apostles and maybe till about 150 AD and ever since then it's all gone to hell. And uh, the church has been terrible. Uh, Not so. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he is always, the church is never perfect, because it's uh, filled with fallen men. And therefore, God is always calling the church back to himself, and he's always renewing it, and uh, there's always a gap between the vision that we have to renew and restore the church and what we're actually experiencing in all centuries and all times. And how other Christians saw things, if God can speak to you by the Holy Spirit, this is very important for those of us who believe in the present activity of the Holy Spirit, if God can speak to you by the Holy Spirit to show you Scripture, It's just plain arrogance to think he hasn't done that with other Christians just as much as you. The Greeks had a concept of pride called hubris, and hubris is involved in uh, Greek tragedies. And in a Greek tragedy, 
uh, the, you, the protagonist or the antagonist comes to see his or her hubris uh, and, and have a catharsis experience that is be cleansed of it when it's too late to save them. And uh, unfortunately, uh, too many of us have lived too close to that, that edge. So, uh, you know, we want to know what God showed Athanasius. We want everyone to know who Athanasius was and why Athanasius Contramundum was the rallying cry of the 4th century and the 5th century. Because if you don't, you're missing... Uh, Big insights into scripture. So that's called historical theology. And we're actually going to run a church history class and then a historical theology class next time around. So uh, the last kind of theology is called systematic theology. Now, whether you like it or not, you are a systematic theologian. And you're a historian. Everyone has a view of history in their heart and mind and head. And everyone has a view of, the, of how to interpret the Bible and what are the major doctrines and why they're important, whether even, even an atheist has that. So, it's very, for instance, your view of history, it's very common today for people to have a view of history that history is not important, it's irrelevant, and it's boring. Boring. <laughs> you know, and uh, like one of Brother Greg's speeches. Uh, you know, but um, that's not the case. George Santillana, a non-Christian, very famous Spanish philosopher, said those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. And you know, everything that's challenging the church today has been dealt with by other Christians in other centuries. And in fact, part of what caused the church to be as far off base as so much of it is today is because when the church started facing in the late 1800s, the 19th century, some of the same challenges that it had overcome in the late first, second, and all through the second and third century, uh, all new ways of overcoming those challenges were developed because there was an anti-history bias in the in evangelical and fundamentalist circles that caused us to have all new ways of looking at Scripture without understanding how other people have looked at Scripture. So, for instance, and then if you go back to, say, the Re Reformation, there's a lot of people who would uh, identify themselves as Reformed and, uh, versus evangelical, and that's a great thinking tradition in the history of the church. And people will go, well, you know, I'm more Reformed. Great, and they'll say, you know, I understand the battle between Calvin and Arminius and why, uh, you know, Ar Arminianism leads to certain kinds of problems. Uh, but do you know that it's the same exact battle that happened between St. Augustine and Pelagius in the 4th century? And the church understood very clearly that Pelagius was a heretic, outside the bounds of Orthodox Christianity. And do you know that, uh, that right from the beginning, in the late, uh, the middle part, approximately 45 AD or so, 
the ideas that eventually became Gnosticism tr started to invade the church. John, more than any other writer of the New Testament, uh, addressed those, especially in 1 John, and somewhat in his gospel, of course. And Paul addressed them in Colossians and so forth. But uh, eventually the church had to take this on. And in fact, the reason I chose this church history book is because it really understands the battles we are currently having with Gnostic ideas, as John spoke very well about this morning, by the way. Uh, excellent, excellent message. Uh, hope you, uh, if you weren't here, hope you'll listen to the podcast and so forth because uh, he addressed a lot of things that are, it was a great message. So, um, so again, you have these three types of theology. Systematic theology is the most common, but actually it's inevitable that your systematic theology will be erroneous if it's not based on a deep understanding of the other two types of theology, the foundation of biblical theology, and then the stepping stone up of, of historical theology. Sort of part of uh, the modern zeitgeist is we're the first ones. You know, I was part of the 60s and the 70s, and we smoked a lot of weed and had, you know, nice pictures and great colors and and we all said come to San Francisco and put a flower in your hair and and we were going to overcome all the greed and all the uh, in social injustices and so forth and we are going to bring in this perfect world with no doctrine of sin no doctrine of atonement we were just the, the doctrine was that our righteousness was based on we're of this new generation. That didn't last very long, if you know. Most of those people are the most corrupt people in politics and Wall Street and so forth today <laughs> in the media. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, not knowing historical theology will, will, will bite you. So, all right. So the theology class... We actually kind of work backwards in this church. We want to at least first help you learn how to do systematic theology pretty well. So the theology class uses uh, Wayne Grudem's uh, systematic theology book. He's kind of halfway between an evangelical and reform book. But some of the most important concepts of his book is that he uses more plain language and puts the more technical theological terms in the footnotes at the bottom of the page, which makes it more accessible for everyone. Secondly, at the end of each chapter, he has uh, a, like a little short chap bibliography that if you want to study this idea in theology from a Lutheran perspective, read this book. If you want a Catholic perspective, read this book. If you want a Baptist perspective, read this guy, and so forth. And so... That is very helpful, and it's very accessible. So uh, the way we do it is so, like in our, uh, as we're going to look at, if I get far enough along today, uh, what we try to do is we really try to equip and train a lot of leaders that aren't necessarily professionally paid leaders. 
We actually were seven years old as a church before the first person got a whopping salary of $14,000 a year, slightly less than you'd make it working at Arby's. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and uh, now we have two people on staff with combined salaries of about 55000 a year. If you've ever raised two or three kids, try to make ends meet on that. But uh, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> divided by two. So... We use a lot of people leading Bible studies, campus ministries, doing evangelism, worship teams, so forth, that, um, that are, are not necessarily uh, seminary graduates, but we want you to have more of an education than seminary graduates would have if you're going to lead even a little home group or the, one, the Monday night prayer meeting. One of the reasons Edwin leads the money Monday night prayer meeting is because he was one of the first four to finish our systematic theology class, and he went to a, one of the best Christian high schools, that, and he went through Bible survey one and two, and he, uh, he grasped a lot of biblical ideas, probably most, more than most pastors today, as most of our leaders do. That's quite important to us. It's part of our culture here. So um, the theology class kind of works like this. It meets every eight weeks. And it, in, in a, a year and a half, you cover what you w normally would in a college class in one semester. So it, it helps the average person keep up with it because it's a little more spread out. S uh, secondly, instead of having tests, and, and papers and things that make a lot of busy work, you basically answer three or four short answer questions for, for each chapter. And you do a few chapters each time, and then you also correlate that with R.C. Sproul's systematic theology class called Foundations. And we officially have R.C. Sproul's permission to copy and disperse these without paying for them because he and Ray Nethery are friends. So... Um, so you'll get, uh, if you take the class, you'll get a bunch of CDs that'll have uh, theology lectures, each of which that are about 20 minutes long, and there's usually, oh, three or four per CD, and you can listen to them in the car, in the shower, what have you. I, I've actually listened to them all several times, so I like them. And uh, so, you know, the whole point is it's very manageable, and you meet once every eight weeks from about 1.30 to 3.30. As soon as the Sunday dinner starts to clear out, they set up the tables in a conference style. That's why we want to lock it at 16. And we want to make sure the 16 people that have taken it are people we have enough history with or enough knowledge of to think to, to think that, uh, that, you know, we want to have all 16 people finish this time because this may be the last time we get to run it with Ray. Part of our way of doing leadership is we want you to know our hearts, right? And we have a, uh, three elders who are so diverse. Uh, it's a good thing we love each other because we're not the same. And we're not gifted the same, and we don't see things the same, and that's kind of what you want in a leadership team. We don't have the same gifts and the same temperament. And Ray kind of adds to that because he's like a kindly old grandfather. It's encouraged. He's like the polar opposite of me. <laughs> People like Ray. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we want uh, 
as many of our people would have the experience of doing that class. It's just about it's just as much about knowing a guy. Uh, just so you know, he his first ministry assignment was started the summer before I was born, and I turned sixty this December. So it was sixty years ago this past summer that he went to work for Campus Crusade for Christ as one of the founding members of it, and, and was the roommate of the founder, Bill Bright, and. Uh, you know, he's a guy with some that's been around the block a few times, I guess is what I'm trying to say. All right, so with that in mind, that's the theology class, the church history. Uh, oh, and the church history has a book that uh, just the name of the church history. There's actually two phases to the church history, so there's you can take either church history 201 or church history 202 on the sign-up sheet, there's a little box to click, to check, if you want to take the 202. Okay? Or another box to say that says if you only want to take just the 201, and that'll all become clear what it is. First thing is, uh, the, the 201 is called, I will build my church. Hopefully by now you recognize that as Matthew 16, verse 18. And uh, Jesus is using the same Greek word, ekklesia, that we get ecclesiology or the study of the church from, as is in the Old Testament Greek version of the scriptures called the, the Septuagint, that whenever it talks about the assembly of the Lord or the congregation of the Lord, uh, it uses ecclesia, the church of, of Moses. And what he's basically saying is God used Moses to build this church, and out of Moses' church is going to grow a new movement that's going to be my church. Okay? And I will build it. Therefore, guess what? The elders don't own Grace Christian Fellowship. Now, I can always tell a lot about where people are at with the Lord if they've been coming six months or a year and, they will, and they're talking to one of us and they say, your church versus our church. <laughs> But, and I'm not trying to correct that in any way, but it's his church. It belongs to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have the right to build it by any old pattern we want. That is at the, you know, today we have all sorts of modern marketing methods and modern ideas about how to do church and so forth. And there's the mega church movement, and there's all sorts of uh, different kinds of ways of looking at the church, many of which come out more of the, from the traditions of men or from various business marketing, uh, you know, kind of American success models, than they really come out of how Jesus did it. You know, the first thing that Jesus did, when someone has leadership potential, I ask them to spend time with me for about three or four years at least once a week. <laughs> and uh, um, because uh, Jesus appointed the 12 that they might be with him and they might send them out to preach. So that, and there's two ways that's fulfilled today to spend time with the leadership God's put in your life and to spend time with the Lord himself. Sit at his feet, read his word, read it thoroughly and so forth. So, the church history class is using a book called Church History and Playing Language. It is very, very, very important that it also says 4th edition. Unfortunately, we weren't able to find it 
at this time uh, in hardback version, which is disappointing uh, because paperbacks tend to uh, get tore up a little, but they're a little less expensive. It also says under the author's name, Bruce L. Shelley, revised by R.L. Hatchett. That is very, very important because what happened was this became a very popular, and I'm going to pass this one around. This became a very, make sure it goes all the way back up front and so forth. Then, you know, maybe down the side and make sure everyone gets to see it. Um, Bruce Shelley's book became a very popular church history book for, for church history classes. Uh, then he, and there was three editions, then he passed away. The uh, editors and the people who had the rights to it uh, knew it needed updated. So they, uh, with, uh, you know, Bruce Shelley's family's approval and so forth, asked this other guy to, to update it. And he did two very, very important things. Realizing that the, maybe the number one challenge of modern Christianity is Gnostic ideas, also called Neoplatonist ideas or dualist ideas, the things John was addressing where our Christianity is just about the spiritual things we do and it doesn't really take dominion and get involved in redeeming and restoring all of creation, you know, business, art, whatever, mathematics. You know, God wants to give you if you're a mathematician, I would encourage you to study the theology of math. And believe me, math has theology. Everything has theology because God created it all. So, um, you know, the, the editor kind of rewove through the original text a whole lot of uh, updated information about how the church battled with Gnosticism in the first several centuries and then he wove it into the last few centuries, how the church started battling with it again. Secondly, uh, the old book came from the kind of a traditional uh, ethnocentric Western perspective, like the church in Europe and the church in America. And so it kind of ended with all the problems in the, the, in the church, you know, if you don't know, Europe is now down to about about 3% Christian. Um, there are many more Muslims, and just based on demographic study, um, Europe will be predominantly Muslim by around 2030. That's not that far away. And uh, um, in America, less than 4% of people under 30 go to church. And America is heading the same direction if we don't start doing some things a little differently. And one, one of the biggest problems today is that we're really failing to convert our children. 45 to 70% of kids growing up in churches are um, having less enthusiasm about the Lord than their parents, less knowledge about the Lord, and in many cases just outright leaving the Lord in their early adulthood and most are not coming back. So... The whole point of Grace Christian Fellowship is to address all that. So uh, that's the book. The book then, uh, he then added some chapters uh, about what some people call the global south, but he kind of updated the book so that we could understand the outpouring of the spirit that's going on in Central America, South America. There's a whole chapter on just what God has done in Eastern Africa 
uh, in the last 110 or 20 years. There's a whole chapter on what God has done in China, or a whole section of a chapter, uh, in South Korea, and so forth. Uh, because the church is exploding globally. And he does a very good analysis of why the church is dying in the West and why it's exploding globally. And in fact, uh, if you look at the syllabus, we're going to start with that chapter, chapter 47, the second to last chapter first. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, um, I'm not going to say any more about the, you can read the syllabus. There's a thing we do called IDs, IDs. Uh, ask who, what, when, where, and so what. If you don't like studying history, it's because you probably were brought up with nobody emphasizing what an old-fashioned idea called identifications. Uh, who, what, when, where, and so what. And half of the points are for so what. Why is this event important? Why is this person important? Who, uh, you know, why, why uh, you know, you know, what, it, what does World War I have to do with me? What does Martin Luther have to do with me? What does St. Gregory the Great have to do with me? Well, you'll know when you take the church history class. <laughs> and, uh, and how does it affect my a walk with God today? Much more than you know. All right, so let's get into today's stuff. Doing well with time. Now, this outline, I've done a thing where... Uh, the outline's a lot more extensive than I'm going to go over for the, because it's a gift to those of you who really want to use it. So there's a number of verses here, and I like looking at the Greek words. One of the things we kind of try to do is get people reading the whole Bible and read the Bible in, in a better translation. Uh, the New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, and the New King James Bible use a philosophy of translation called literal equivalence. And the ones that use the philosophy of translation called dynamic equivalence vary greatly in how good they are. And uh, so we don't recommend the New International Version Bible at all, but it's fine if you're just reading the Bible the first one, two, or three times. But then move to a Bible that's a little more accurate because whenever in the NIV Bible, whenever there's a choice to be made, they err on the side of making it fit into American culture and, and compromise a little bit more, more easily. The English Standard Version, if, uh, if you're not a great vocabulary person and you have, if you're just getting started reading the Bible, uh, I re highly recommend it. That's why it's our Pew Bible. Because the English Standard Version is one of the most accurate and most easy to read in one. Excellent translation. So, uh, but read whole books of the Bible and then read the whole Bible. What we do today is like, I, for instance, I, I like John Steinbeck. He's a great author. Uh, he was. He's dead. <laughs> There's a monument to him in Red Square in, uh, in uh, what's in Petersburg, I guess. But... Uh, he was a communist. He was anti-Christian. I just like how he writes. I didn't like his philosophies at all. <laughs> uh, but if you're going to read The Grapes of Wrath, which is about 350 pages, and I've read three times, and I've read all sorts of essays about The Grapes of Wrath, you know, it wouldn't be that great of a class if I said, okay, we're going to read chapter 27, paragraph 3, and then we're going to discuss chapter 17, paragraph 2, 
And then, uh, you know, we might look at the conclusion and the introduction or something. That would be no way to read a book. And Matthew didn't write that way. John didn't write that way. Paul didn't write that way. Luke didn't write that way. Moses didn't write that way. Daniel didn't write that way. Ezra didn't write that way and so forth. Read the whole books. All right. So, all right, that was all no extra charge. Now we're going to hopefully get in 20 minutes. We're going to get through this. Catechism miniseries, uh, chapter 3. Uh, chapter 1 was given by John Weiss on November 11, 2015. It was posted on our podcast November 11, 2015. And it was called uh, Love, Love God with All Your Life. Now, I've put some of the main points of that message here uh, for you. And, and if you uh, can, go back and listen to the podcast. I re-listened to it last night. And um, I thought, wow, I wish we had, we had video capacity because I'd probably just pay, play the video of, of that this morning <laughs> and, and for the message. Um, it's really good. So... Some of the points is that a catechism is a series of questions and answers. That's why uh, who got, uh, Johnny got honored today because we divide the catechism into three sections. And when you've memorized all the questions, all the answers, and all the script corresponding scriptures for one of the sections uh, that covers around 20 questions about the Christian faith, uh, we give you a little certificate. So... And that's what Jesus was actually doing in Luke chapter 2 when he was in the temple confounding the scribes and Pharisees with his questions. He was basically letting them know a new rabbi is in town with better questions and better answers. The one God always intended. Move over. Here comes the Lord. So... uh, Catechisms are a thorough examination of the Christian faith. They they involve memorization and recitation. Catechisms are often an antidote to what many people have called the plague of triviality that rose out of the Sunday school movement of the 19th century. So I was listening to uh, a professor of church history this week, and he quoted a very common quote today that, evangelicalism is miles wide and an inch deep. Apparently that's a very common quote, especially among seminary teachers. Um, So, uh, what kind of happened in the Sunday school movement is they were trying to address the, the, the lack of using laity in the church as we do, in leadership positions and so forth, so instead of doing what we're doing, which really takes a lot of work and a lot of effort with a lot of people over a lot of years, where we help raise everyone to this kind of understanding that a pastor, theologian, uh, doctorate in biblical studies kind of person would have, they just lowered the content. So they changed from studying things like catechisms and serious theology to Bible stories. How many of you, don't show me your hands, I'll start to cry. We're raised on Bible stories. So, um, catechisms are not a replacement for Scripture. They are, and they're not a, re- uh, 
A catechism won't, we always say this, a catechism won't lead you to Christ, nor will the creeds. But they will, they are a means of God's grace. And when God starts working on you by the Holy Spirit, guess what? If you grow up in a non-creedal church, it says, ah, oh, we don't need all that reciting the Apostles' Creed. Whenever you start speaking about eternal spiritual things, the, the first people who get to you will win. That's how people get in cults and so forth. If you grow up in a creedal tradition and a catechism tradition, when God starts knocking on your door and drawing you to Christ, you'll end up in something biblically solid because you'll know the difference before you're even a Christian. Uh, now, the means of grace are the scriptures by the Holy Spirit and God's providence acting in your life at a certain point. And we call those here uh, the delivery systems of grace. One of the things you'll find is John and I overlap a lot, but don't always use the same terminology, and that's intentional. If you're reading uh, church history and theology, you'll see the phrase means of grace. The idea called delivery systems of grace is just my personal <laughs> coining of a term to try to nail it down uh, and, be, and make it a little bit more explicit for us. Okay, now, chapter two, I did, and it was called Multi-Layered Gospel and Kingdom Catechism, a key to disciple-making model. One of the things we're trying to do, among many things, we're, we're in this whole process called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. We pour hours and years of studying into why is the church falling apart in the West, and what can be done about it, and how can we build on a model that's going to hand the faith off to, to our generationally better? Because I don't care about how much God uses me to pray on, for someone on Thursday night. I care about what they're doing after I'm dead and gone. The Bible's orientation is always about the seed. And the seed is Isaac, and the seed is Christ. And the seed is about how you hand the baton to the next generation. I don't know if you like Olympics. I like Olympics. And I especially like the um, relay races. Thank you. <laughs> because uh, sometimes some of the teams with the best athletes will lose because they missed the baton pass. And Christianity is all about the baton pass. Are we handing a reduced faith that's been brought into more narrow definitions and more narrow bounds? Or are we changing the, are we, you know, throwing a stone in a pond that's going to continue to expand uh, for generations after we're gone? That's what I'm living for. That's why we're doing and things how we do it. So, now, in Luke 1, 1 through 4, he, he says that the reason he writes is uh, just as they were handed down to us from those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning of, to write it out for you in an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. The word taught there is catechio, which we get catechism from. And what he's saying is the purpose of biblical studies, uh, that I, you know, why I'm writing my gospel, 
is so all the things you were catechized in you with, that were in seed form will blossom into this mega structure that's going to take over the world. That's why he wrote the Gospel of Luke. So um, let's get into part three with the 15 minutes I have left. Why are we running and developing a series of biblical studies classes? Two major inextricably intertwined ideas in the meta-narrative, postmodern, cool word, of Grace Christian Fellowship. Uh, there's the definition of meta-narrative. One is we're trying to rethink and rebuild biblical Christianity. You can't take new wine and put it in old wineskins. If you're not going to a church that's rethinking the church, in my opinion, you're wasting your time. Pretty bold statement. I hadn't planned on saying that. Uh, you can stone me later. Uh, secondly, we're trying to re-examine what grace is more than uh, the definition today of unmerited favor. It's God's empowerment and enablement to become a world-changing force. The more God makes you like Him, like Christ, the more you will change all things. Now, all grace comes through Christ. Grace was fully realized in Jesus Christ. And it comes grace upon grace upon grace. It's free, but you have to open the package. But even it's even grace that teaches you to open the package and so forth. We've talked too much on that to get into it just so you know there's some understandings of that that are very important. But Christ will come to you through three delivery systems. He is the living word of God, the grace of God, and he'll come to you through a more thorough study of the written word of God. He'll come to you through a deeper encounter and understanding of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to bear witness to Christ. The whole point of his Last Supper discourse, John 14, 15, 16, uh, well, starting in 13, is I'm, gonna, I'm showing you a new model of leadership. I'm going to wash feet. I'm not going to be the head guy or the whatever and the TV evangelist that everything has to be about me and focus on me and so forth. First, I'm just going to, you know, take out the trash and wash your feet and, and so forth. And then I'm going to release to you the most god-awful force in the history of the universe, much bigger than the bombs that were released in Japan at the end of World War II, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And you better not underestimate the discipleship, study, sanctification process that it'll take to handle that wisely. Unfortunately today, most people who live in the, in, in the reality of the present activity of the Holy Spirit, most churches are, are shallow in theology, are, um, you know, everyone's promoting themselves, they're not working as teams, and, um, and it's somewhat of a mess. And, fr you know, frankly, Pentecostals and Charismatics are known for adultery and financial mismanagement and self-promotion. So, uh, un but that does not negate the reality of the fact that we need to restore the Holy Spirit in all his person, ministry, and functions. We just need to do it 
with more mutual submission, more study, more integrity, more brokenness, and so forth. All of us need to be broken. And lastly, almost all conservative views of Christianity today and liberals, both what both both uh, groups that came out of what was known as the fundamentalist modernist uh, controversy have very little doctrine of the church, very little understanding of how we're supposed to live together. That's the first thing that people are amazed at when they start fellowshipping with us is like you have a dinner after every Friday night worship and every Sunday and people you know, live in extended households and people uh, mow each other's lawns and you know, do you know do all kind of service things, and you people who are behind academically, then other people are tutoring them, and and uh, and all these kind of things. Yeah, I mean, just you know, we uh, gave a gun safe to Lynn's husband. I never thought I'd be in a church that had a Sunday presentation of a gun safe. Well, he's a police officer, and he has to take his guns home. And he needed a better gun safe because he got good kids. And so, why not wash one another's feet with whatever it takes? If you come over around Christmas time, I'll share my soup recipes with you. Uh, <laughs> so, um, all right, flip over. Next page. The overarching purpose of GCF Foundational Equipping and Biblical Studies Theology Classes is to cultivate a community of kingdom culture and continual catechism. Now, that's a little overuse of alliteration. <laughs> but uh, that's what we want to do. You know what? Whether you know it or not, you have a Christian culture. And your church has a culture. And has that culture really been rethought enough to be fully biblical? And one aspect that, that has gotten away from the church today is from the time of Moses until, oh, about 150 years ago, Christians were known generally as people of the book because we lived a lifestyle of studying the book, talking about the book, sharing the book, saying, does my soup... Match the book. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, like, uh, how does the book apply to being a lawyer? How does the book apply to being a doctor? How does the book apply to being a father? How does the book apply to being a table waiter? There's lots of verses about table waiters. Might need to improve your serve. So, then, all right, so let's get into this. Five specific purposes of GCF Foundational Equipping Biblical Studies. Now, I'm breaking this down now into more specifics, and I'm only going to be able to list them for the most part. And so what I want to just share with you is when you read the verses, I put the Greek words in many cases in what's called a transliteration. A transliteration is when you take uh, an English word and you give it the Greek um, phonetic equivalent. Okay, down below, I've given you both the word with the Greek symbols and the transliteration and some definition of it. So if you want to take the verses I've given here, which is all about the New Testament uh, building a culture, because what they had was something very different than what we have. In one, one aspect, not only because of how they lived in community, but because of how they kept the book front and center all the time about everything.
Okay? So Ephesians 1, there is Paul's prayer um, for the Ephesians. He has three different prayers in, in Ephesus. For, and uh, if I, I did like a whole study of Paul's prayers in his prayer life. And I always start with the three he has in Ephesians. And two of them, part, a little bit of two of them are there. And notice how much he uses the words for knowledge. Okay, so knowledge, epigenosis, precise and correct knowledge, a full knowledge. Uh, to know is oida, appears 335 times in 297 verses, and it means a skilled knowledge. How would you like to have a surgeon who didn't go to medical school? <laughs> Tate, and you're going to volunteer for that. Uh, you know, ah, Tate's going to medical school. Let's just have him operate on my heart now. <laughs> Because he's a Christian, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit will guide him. <laughs> Any volunteers that can sign up after church. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, it's amazing to me how, how much there's this anti-knowledge thing in the church today, and unfortunately, particularly in Pentecostal and Charismatic circles, and the Holy Spirit was given to lead and guide us into all truth. The first thing that should happen when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, besides loving to worship more freely and witness more boldly and hunger for the scriptures more, is you should be like, hey, let's do a rethink on everything. That's what the Holy Spirit's actually saying to you. Moving down, the next word for no, gnosko is a kind of a uh, feeling spiritual knowledge. Uh, it's even used for sexual intercourse and in both, you know, when it says that so-and-so knew his wife in the Old Testament and in, in Matthew, when it says that, that Joseph kept her aversion in English, it says he didn't know her in that, in that word, gnosko. They, they weren't intimate yet. Uh, gnosis, a complete knowledge and so forth. All right, flip over. Point number two. That all class participants, frankly every member of our church, might understand, enjoy, and follow Jesus Christ, the living word of God, through a thorough knowledge of God. Do you know that the Westminster Catechism starts with what is the chief purpose or end or telos of man? To worship God and enjoy him forever. You know what? If you don't know the word thoroughly and you're not sanctified to the Lord, you're going to have more frustration, less joy, and less of a full life. Now, there's a whole bunch of verses there about knowing the Lord. Notice the one in Hebrews at the end, since John's doing a series on Hebrews, is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 and through 34. Of all the promises of God of the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, this is the one that contains the most content about what all of the promises together mean, that they will all know me from the least to the greatest. So, uh, number three, that every member might be equipped for their unique calling to ministry, that is to participate, partner, koinonia. Fellowship comes from the word koinonia, and it means to share all things in common, to partner and so forth, in the corporate calling, culture, and mission of Grace Christian Fellowship. We have three missions as a church. To, to our, our mission to love God, our mission to love each other, and our mission to love the lost. 
and disciple the nations. So, uh, there's the word equipping means to perfect, repair, train, prepare. We want to equip the saints to do the work of service. You know, what we do have today is what we call the consumer model of Christianity. We come on Sunday mornings, and that's why, like, you know, we, uh, people come in, they visit one time, and they judge everything about, like, the nature of our service, when, in fact, that has very little to do with what we are, right? Isn't 95% of what we do be, what we do behind the scenes? If you really want to know what our church is about, spend time with Anvesh and Deanne, Deanna, not Deanna, Deanne, not Deanne, Deanna, and, uh, you know, Davion and John and the other, and John and John, <laughs> and the other, and more Johns, uh, first, second, third John. So, because, honestly, uh, as you know, those of you who've been here a long time, I share once or twice a year at 1030 because we have so many gifted musicians and leaders and so forth, I'm not needed anymore, and my real gift is behind the scenes discipling one person at a time and releasing them into what they're supposed to do and go do it. All right, number four, that we might always be increasing the participation of each member in building a corporate culture of comprehensive biblical faith and catechism and through a study of the Catholic faith, I just decided to throw that in there because everyone goes, oh my God, are you Roman Catholic? No. But Jude says to contend earnestly for the faith once and all for all delivered. And that Greek word is the same word that Luke uses when he talks about the things that you were taught, you were handed down, you know, he um, passed on and so forth. Because, you know, today... Everything's always about like having better light shows and smoke coming out of the speakers and, and more excitement and our worship is more excitement. I just want you to say, know that anyone who's been discipled by me knows I'm really boring. <laughs> uh, you know, I love college football and I don't show any emotion, <laughs> but I enjoy it. But uh, it's like, raw. Uh, so... <laughs> You know, um, because what we're, we're not supposed to be inventing new things. We're supposed to be faithful to what's been handed down. And that's the real issue. And modern Christianity has too many things that are modern. That's why we have guys with ancient beards. <laughs> All right, so... Number five, that the Bible may be better understood by each participant attaining to an ever fuller knowledge of all Scripture and the three interpretive disciplines of biblical, historical, and systematic theology. Now, I didn't have time to really develop any of these subjects that well. They're all over our podcast. That's what we do behind the scenes. And uh, I hope you'll consider tracking more with us. I'm going to end by saying the John Gray principle. John... Gray came on Friday nights for a long time, and he basically later said to me, I knew there was something here because I saw all these guys that were five, six, seven years old, younger than me that were, knew the scriptures more, even though he had degrees in it, that were filled with the Spirit more, that had better vocational tracking, more maturity and different things, and Jesus said you'll know them by their fruits. 
And eventually he was willing to actually start looking and studying the stuff himself. And he and I did a Bible study every week for six months in the eye. In the, now, now he and, and Leah do that with John and Emily every week. And they study stuff and so forth. And, he's, and uh, it's been a wonderful thing. Um, but when John and Leah got married, they came to me and they said, we're going to go to Leah's church for four weeks. We're going to go to John's church for four weeks. Then we're going to come for four Sundays to Grace Christian Fellowship. Then we're going to decide. And I thank God for this. Took a little boldness, but I said, in all due respects, there's no way you could understand Grace Christian Fellowship in four weeks. You're going to need a year, and you're going to need to read quite a few of our foundational books and know at least 10 or 12 of our uh, leaders and you're going to need to re- listen to some of our podcasts and read all our foundational articles. And then you'll begin to understand the depth and health and the breadth of what we're doing here. So our hope is that through these classes, and through, you know, and by the way, the classes, if you're newer here and you're not at a place where you could take a class or whatever, lots of people... I'll probably use the Chris Wu principle, although he's probably down in stairs, right? But, you know, Chris is taking both classes this time. He's a lawyer and a major in the Air Force and a really smart guy and stuff. But he's been here a couple years, and actually he's been very faithfully listening to our podcast as his, his wife, and they've read a lot of our books, and they've, and, but most importantly, they've taken biblical studies to a whole new level and so forth. And so there's plenty of that you can do before you take a class. Um, you know, work out with uh, some council of some of our leaders what, what would be best for you. You're welcome to take a class at the, if you've just been here a while, but I would suggest you might consider getting into uh, Bible study with some of our leadership couples or, or whatever and see what the Lord will do. But I believe we've, you know, we started asking 45 years ago, my wife and I, why American Christianity is, is uh, losing ground and what it would take to rebuild the whole thing. And I trust by the grace of God, he's helped us have some answers to that that are really working for a lot of people. Amen.